This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, multidisciplinary designer Beth and Laura Wood shares her contribution to the NGV Triennial in Australia. We also visit a net zero fire station in Canada, plus architect Mario Cuccinella. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. In painting chairs, it is sometimes the practice to marble them. Nothing can be in worse taste, as no imitation should ever be introduced where the reality could not be applied if persons chose to go to the expense. What you can hear right now is a passage from the Decorative Painters and Glazier's Guide, a book published in 1827 and written by Nathaniel Whittock. This excerpt forms part of Beth and Laura Wood's installation for the National Gallery of Victoria Triennial, which is now on show in Melbourne until the 7th of April 2024. Invited to participate as part of the cosmetic brand Mecca's NGV Women in Design Commission, Bethan's work includes a bespoke carpet and bookcase. Called Kaleidoscoperama, the pieces include veneer surfaces produced by Italian brand Alpi. The work has been informed by research into the Regency period, a knowledge exchange which took place between aristocratic English women during the late 18th and early 19th century. Bethan joined me at Midori House to discuss this contribution to the triennial and the colours and kaleidoscopic wood grains featured in the work. She begins by explaining the initial stages of her design process. We started talking about the blue stocking salons. There was the starting of female groups. Granted, they were rich ladies, but, you know, we have to start somewhere coming together and making these salons where they would discuss different subjects, but predominantly in politics and sharing knowledge. So I loved the idea of how to make a contemporary version of, of this for the installation. There's a Punch cartoon, which is quite a derogatory cartoon. So during this window of time, Punch, satirical newspaper, they would do cartoons. And there's this cartoon of like a group of blue stocking ladies gathering. And it's like a raucous bright kind of garish colours of dresses kind of swirling, cats being thrown, broken teacups and it's the idea that gatherings of women cannot be civilised and it's like really taking the piss basically and in the kind of great tradition of subversion of when you have a slur there's a way that you take that slur and you reclaim it. So I love the idea of kind of reclaiming these kind of raucous colours and this unease around what happens when ladies get together and that kind of started to also inform creating these book matched almost psychedelic patterns and colours I was in deep despair for I thought it quite impossible that I ever could remember all the hard names that seemed to stand on the very threshold of the science as if to forbid the entrance of any but the initiated Sometime afterwards, as I was walking through the gardens of the Horticultural Society at Chiswick, my attention was attracted by a mass of the beautiful crimson flowers of the Malape Grandiflora. The fact that the form is a bookcase is talking to these gathering and this information growing, but then it's also about claiming that strong female identity that was present at the time. What's the process, we've kind of hinted at it here, of, of like getting these big ideas 
onto a physical form. Where does the, the inspiration to do a bookcase come from? One of the things that, as a designer, you uh, have to try and wrangle. At some point, you have to make decisions and then you have to build a language or a body of work around those decisions. Otherwise, it's so much spaghetti in the soup. I wanted to make a furniture-based commission, something that had a core element that had um, a nod to furniture language. I like the idea of a bookcase because the bookcase itself is a vessel for knowledge. So though these physically hold books, part of the reason why I wanted audio and I wanted visual things. So I like that it was a vessel that spoke of traditional learning but also I could use it as a conduit for different ways of learning. It was one of the audio snippets that we put in about a patent for a rotational bookcase from the period and it speaks to other things going on within design narratives of the way of opening up spaces to be like almost like open plan living was almost starting a little bit at this time so this is where you have a lot of furniture on casters or on wheels. Sometimes you have to just like put a pin in and go, okay, let's go for this as a point. If you try and keep too many things in, it can can become very messy. Though I I had a nice chunk of time to work on the commission, the reality of being able to research, produce and then ship such a big body of work meant that I had quite a tight time to kind of hone on what it was that I was going to do conceptually and then make sure I had enough time and language to develop the actual design part. So that's also why I think... When I found some passages about library furniture and it it all kind of made sense, I didn't feel like I needed to question that as a direction. The dissolution of this assembly is marked by a certain amount of animosity and fury. The learned ladies are engaging in pairs and the subject under discussion is handled with more zeal and discretion. What do you hope the people that visit uh, the NGV take away from this? With most of my work, I try and make it in a layered form. So if you want to just come in and enjoy being like smacked in the eyeballs with a load of pattern, knock your socks off and enjoy. If you want to have that and then go round and in the actual bookcase, it's a mix of some of the historical but also contemporary books that I've been reading. And I'm dyslexic, so I'm not one of these people that picks up books every five minutes and I'm reading through lots of books. I find it quite a challenge. I also wanted to use the commission as a way to give myself permission to try and see if I could get through some books. So if people just come and take note of some of the titles of the books and then maybe have a look to see if one of them tickles their fancy, that's awesome. If they listen to the audio and they're curious about where that comes from, they can then see where that passage is from and find the book. I loved the the phrase smacked in the eyeballs with colour. Moving beyond this this commission, your work is known for being quite bold, quite playful, quite colourful. For some people, I think that can be very scary. Are there any tips or tricks to using colour in unexpected ways or or really going for it? I read a recent study that the amount of colour in design and and furniture production is decreasing. In the 1950s, it was actually much higher than it is now. And maybe that's stemming from fear. Do do, do you have any advice on how to use it or or any comment on it, on, I guess, that that shift? The reason why I love colour is because it has such a deep emotional 
intensity to it that we connect to or definitely don't connect to. And that is partly why people have more fear around using colour. There's ways of playing with colour, especially within your own space, that are cheaper to do than others. So if you want to have a play with colour, as long as you don't get like a high gloss dark lacquer, that might be slightly more difficult to paint over. But at the end of the day, it's just paint. Even for myself, like I only, I think, painted my house with colour house flat during lockdown because for so many years I'd been in rented places where you're not allowed to and it took ages trying to decide on colour but it made such a difference to the space. Granted I'm quite colour tolerant. You just have to play with it to learn it. You just have to build up a confidence in that way around colour and then you can kind of get more and more bold with it or decide it's not for you but I think there's an empowerment to be able to form an opinion that's yours and not one that's prescribed to you by what's in trend or what's not in trend. Chairs may be painted in imitation of any fancy wood, and if chairmakers were to turn their attention to forming library, hall and passage chairs of common wood, and have them painted in images. I think it's a really interesting period of time. There's certain things are moving incredibly fast, especially to do with the crossover between technology and um, objects and the things that were not obsolete when I was a student are very much obsolete now. When I, I was a student, which uh, granted was quite a craft-based course, we already were looking at um, the path of what, design or where design can go when we're aware of the constraints of uh, mass industry. Many years, especially in the 50s where you're talking about having much more colour choice, there was an explosion of optimism with the mass and there was a need for mass because we'd we'd had the wars and we needed to produce more objects and things for people because they didn't have them. And now we're at a point where we've consumed so much but we're being made more and more aware of the consequences of that consuming. Designers have a really difficult tightrope of how to, like, both to placate our need for stuff. It's part of our nature. It's also what makes humans humans. And then the reality of that when things become part of massive systems where to decode those layers of systems becomes more and more complicated or becomes connected in a much larger and smaller context all at the same time. We have a mix between large scale and small scale where, let's say, there was a lot of kind of small scale activism around do we make mass anymore or self-production with people like Martino Gamper and this kind of crew from this period. Also, now, if you look at uh, designers like Patricia Occhiola, who works in mass industry, but she is really pushing some of the partners she works with to work with recycled materials, to reclaim materials. And so I think there's an opening within mass industry where their mass conscience or mass culture has become more aware of that as a subject where it's in their interest to look at ways of addressing it within the mass scale and then being able to use some of the small scale and then scale up but also the things that work small don't necessarily work big. So I think there's a whole spaghetti, I'm saying spaghetti a lot in this interview. I'm kind of like, it's um, close to lunchtime. Yeah, probably. There's a whole ball of yarn that can be unravelled by design and needs to be unravelled by design to understand how we work within two scales of system. That's a, a, a big challenge and a needed challenge. I mean, the, there's no going back. The spaghetti's out of the bowl. I don't know. Yes, maybe. exactly. If we want to keep it going. I mean, I, I guess just, just finally, maybe I'm putting you on the spot here, but 
How are you dealing with this this shift in your own work? How are you reconciling these differences and, and this changing environment? I've come to terms that my speciality is not necessarily only working like with a raw material that we imagine is like ecological or made from like recycling in a pure way. I've always been fascinated with this in between mass and individual. So often especially at the moment, things like the veneers that I've been developing for this project with Alpi sit in this world between mass and one. All the colours that I've placed together, it's not dead stock. It's when you produce a veneer on a mass scale, you need to produce a certain amount and over the amount to make sure you have backup for if there's a mistake or you also need to have samples that you can then rematch the colour to for a next order. So there's certain systems where you have to have an overspend. And so in the archive, they have all these sheets that it's not enough for them to use back into industry without a big order, meaning that they can dye more. But then for the scale that I want to work with them, there's enough there for me to make a whole book. This is why I did the kind of book scale and then researched into the kind of book matching and this kind of kaleidoscopic way of placing sheets together. Quite often I'm interested in working with materials that have a connection with mass industry, but then seeing what happens when you use them outside of the system or in a complementary system. That's where my interest is. Beth and Laura Wood there. Kaleidoscope Arama is on show as part of the National Gallery of Victoria's Triennial. For this next package, we're turning to the pages of Monocle magazine's February issue. In it, we meet the architect behind a groundbreaking new fire station in Edmonton. The structure is net zero and the first of its kind in Canada. It's a status that means that all of the energy that the complex uses is generated by the building itself. Monocle's correspondent Thomas Lewis went to meet its architect, Pat Hansen, the co-founder of Toronto-based studio GH3. So you are looking, how do I describe this? A building that has, it's asymmetrical. It's sort of a darkish grey, black colour. One side of it has a very pronounced, curved slope. So it's sort of like a a house-shaped building with a pitched roof, but one side of that pitch is a very, very gentle slope. And that slope is clad with solar panels. You're not seeing it in this view, but that's the purpose of that slope. The silhouette of the building, which is this very slopey, curved one side to it, came about sort of for two reasons. One is this is a net zero building, low carbon, which means that it needs to produce as much energy as it consumes. And whenever we work on projects like that, we like to have the architecture be responsive to what those energy ambitions might be. So in this case, we knew that this building would have to have geothermal below grade for heating and cooling, but it would also need to include a lot of solar panels. So lifting the roof, pitching it up, making it higher so that we can make the expanse of the roof as large as possible and giving it the slight curvature as the architectural conceit is to ensure that that roof plane which faces south is as large as we can make it. It provides all of the electrical energy that's needed for the station and if there's a surplus it sends it back to the grid. Okay. Right? They don't we don't have any battery storage on site. So right. if there is a surplus and then that is used to power all of the 
fans that we use for the geothermal. As a type, a fire station, I don't know if you'd worked on them before. Never, yeah. Maybe you walk through that then slightly, how you learn about all the components a fire station needs on top of these energy considerations that, I think this is the first net zero fire station in Canada, isn't Mm -hmm. that right? Yeah, maybe walk through kind of what bits of the jigsaw go into a fire station. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll start up a little bit with the beginning about when you started to think about it. I'd never worked in a fire station. I think if you live in an older neighborhood in any city, you see these iconic structures with bell towers and beautiful apparatus bay doors. So the fire hall is one of those civic buildings that is embedded in the communities. And so they are also one of those trusted secure buildings that we think of it as in our communities. And more than that, I was, you know, when we started working on it, we really think about, like, the storybooks, you know, the stories that are told about fire halls and children watching the fire trucks come out of the fire halls and the sort of excitement of it, but then the security one gets when there's not an emergency, you know, and they're usually masonry and stone and have that kind of feeling of permanence and security to them. So that was a kind of starting point that we really wanted to imbue this building, which is in a completely new neighborhood, suburban, quite different than the examples I'm talking about, but was to sort of imbue this building with a little bit of the same cultural, social context. They're very interesting building types in that they are basically domestic quarters for firefighters that while they're on duty, they live in the fire station. So a portion of them is really like a big house. And then the rest is the kind of technical and mechanical area where the fire trucks are kept. And then all of the kind of ancillary things around that, like storage for the firefighters' clothing so that when they come back from a fire, it can be hung up and decontaminated and decontamination showers and things like that. But two elements, one which is an industrial portion of the building and one which is residential. And getting those two spaces partially architecturally to sort of feel like they're one. The roof sort of does that as well. But to ensure that when the firefighters are, you know, watching television or having lunch, I mean, there's a number of lighting fixtures and the lighting alarm systems within the domestic quarters that go off so that they know if they're going to be called to the truck. But that the organization of the floor plan allows for an incredibly quick response time from fighters so that they might be at anywhere in the domestic quarters but there's in this case a sort of a u-shaped corridor where they can get into the apparatus bay which is where the fire trucks are within seconds i think there are certain things that really need to be thought of slightly differently but there are some rules for sure so that idea about that u-shaped corridor where everybody can get a view into apparatus bay is huge. The dorms, so there might be eight firefighters in the facility at one time and then a couple of captain rooms are sort of organized in a quieter part of the building. The kitchen is huge and they make their own meals and then they have a little terrace off here where they barbecue if they need to and then a room where they sit in these huge sort of lazy boy chairs and watch television. When we did the domestic quarters of this time round, the captain was worried that they was a little too subdued in color. It was sort of grays and whites. So we added a little bit more color because he felt like it looked a little too high end. 
But then when the, some of the firefighters were asked how they felt about it, they thought it was okay. The thing that is interesting about that, though, and I, if I was to ever do another fire hall, I might think about it differently, is apparently firefighters are first responders. Mm-hmm. So if there's a car accident, they're the ones that are there first. So mm-hmm. they see the worst of everything. So their mental health, their well-being they can have some pretty grim days, right? Mm. So that their domestic quarters have a feeling of calmness and serenity and sort of peacefulness, I think is important. We added a few panels of color to the gray walls and I mean, it still looks like it could be a nice hotel somewhere, but they like it. I don't know what I would do next time. I mean, we either flip between sort of all gray to all white interiors, so I'm kind of at a bit of a loss. And again, with the timings of this, you're talking about matter of seconds, but in terms of this more industrial area, how quickly does that all come to to life? So they get in here really fast, and then one of the really important things is how quickly the apparatus bay doors open. You can imagine these doors open thousands of times during the year. Those doors opening have a huge impact on the ability to control the interior and the amount of energy used because it's the winter, these doors open. Right. And so that's one of the bigger challenges of getting a building like this to net zero. But the speed of those doors is absolutely key to the speed of which the fire truck can get outside and normally they're overhead but in these we found that a bifold door would open even faster. And just the idea of why a city like Edmonton has put so much focus on having you know these buildings that are essential to the way mm-hmm. a city works mm-hmm. but putting high design, good architecture, making that a really important part of new buildings like this and I guess what that you know how you feel about that as an architect what that makes like. me really like Edmonton <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very fond of it I mean it's partly the way that they've set it up in the city and it came initially from one of their mayors sort of said I'm kind of tired of this architectural crap that we're building and let's raise the bar so I think they reorganized internally the how they deliver projects mm. They've always had a city architect, but I think that city architect is more involved in the procurement. The one that I've been working with, and it always comes down to people. It's partly the structure, but it comes down to somebody great. So his name is Carl Boulanger, and he has sort of single-handedly changed their procurement method. Culturally, it's made a huge difference just across the whole city. And a lot of those projects, we've done you know, three or four of them, are published in the city. And so architecture is now something that people in Edmonton pay a little bit of attention to. The architect Pat Hansen there, in conversation with Monocle's Thomas Lewis. Finally on today's show, we catch up with Italian architect Mario Cuccinella, winner of a 2023 World Architecture Festival Award for his design of the Santa Maria Goretti Church in Italy. Monocle's Lillian Fawcett spoke to Mario shortly after he won the prize in Singapore. They discussed some of the most pressing issues facing the industry today. The agenda of sustainability has become one of the major points. And I think also client and public works, they really have the ambition to, to reach that level of sustainability, also for political reasons, for marketing reasons, 
also for the real problems. And I think that is the, one of the major issues, how to do it. But I always say that we are only the beginning of the stories. It's just because it's a cultural change. You know, more than, I mean, climate change is a consequence of our behaviors, but also cultural change is the most difficult because you need to change the set of your mind or the information you have, your culture. So I think that's why it's important to listen to the new generation because they already embedded these ecology problems. No? And I think, yeah, that is one of the major issues. Do you find that when clients come to you, they're already aware of the issue of sustainability or is that something that you're having to insert into projects with clients? Well, a little bit both. There's a lot of ambition and a lot of like developers or clients that really have the ambition to do, oh, we want to do that sustainable buildings. Maybe they don't know exactly what does it mean because it's a very specific issue in architecture. So what we do is, in some way, we work because we have this kind of background, and on the other hand, we help the client to understand what does it mean. Because, you know, people say, oh, we want a zero-impact building. And I say, well, the looks that, that exist, you know, you do that and that. And also, we help the client to see what would be the best solution to get a better life in your building. It's not only about the numbers, and not only about performance kilowatts, it's about comfort, you know? so that's why we... So it's something to help also to guideline the client in a good, uh, good question. No? When you look to the future, where do you see the architectural industry heading? What's your kind of focus for the next few years? Well, there's a two different uh, points. One is, I say, the European context is a, is a context where we are going to use, try to use better our city, our buildings. But we already built a lot, so it will be not an issue what will be the next generation of building that will be few, no? compared to what we are built. Other issue is in Asia, where they still in China, in other country, in India, they're going to build a new city, a lot of new buildings. So I, th- I think the, the, the future will be difficult to say, but uh, the awareness will become growing and growing, but the economy pushing in a different direction. But one thing is for sure, in the last 20 years, the awareness about ecology and about sustainability in buildings and cities is growing dramatically in a very good way. You know? So I hope then the, the, pressure, the pressure from the people, not from the political, not from the politics, but from the people, is going to make uh, this kind of a pressure is going to make the change because that's the only way. How do you kind of reconcile the need to be conscious of the environment, not necessarily building lots of new buildings, maybe repurposing what already exists, with obviously the fact that you're a designer, you want to build new things, and you want work as well, I guess? Well, this is a little bit dilemma, I would say, between be an architect with a desire to design buildings and build buildings, and on the other hand, the, the trend for the next years will be reducing the construction of buildings. But I think there's an area of work which is very interesting then is reusing buildings, you know, make an interpretation, a new interpretation of building. Also because many buildings built in 1960, 1970, 1980 are very poor. So there's a, a very large opportunity to redesign existing buildings. Also because it's the most... Uh, maybe the most sustainable action, because they're already inside of the city, 
the networks and transportation, all the infrastructure is already there. And I think we did some project like this and it's a great opportunity, creative opportunity. So it will be a balance between renovating existing buildings to give a new life and also design new buildings. I think we need also new building because we need new schools, we need new university. But maybe we need to demolish the existing and rebuild on that area, you know? so avoiding to consuming more land. But exchange, you know, it's an existing building doesn't work with the motion we rebuilt. So it's still a got opportunity to design new buildings, you know, in that context. Yeah. And finally, what is exciting you about the next few years? Where are the big opportunities, do you think, in architecture? I did the two little projects which I'm, I'm very proud is one we built a small three small building in uh, Ukraine in uh, Brovary which is a city close to Kiev and it was not about the architecture but the, the fact that this three small building was received like uh, the creation of a new community you know and I called it architecture is a sign of peace you know? and I, I, I very enjoy to do it with the people also, they built, we designed, so this kind of exchange for make people more happy, and then also because we care about people, no? And also, unfortunately, Gaza is one of the more incredible disaster. But we designed and built a few years ago a school in Gaza and designed for the United Nations schools. And I, I think that's kind of a context so dramatic that you can see how much is important the work of an architect. That's why it makes me very exciting to see that the consequence of the work we do is make more people happy, more people learning, people gathering together. And the building rule is this one, not to creating communities. And, and the future will be this. I mean, design building to make more communities in a more difficult context. No? Because the rich world is already full of stuff. You know? There's a part of the world that need a good architecture, but not an aesthetic point of view, but for the meaning, you know, to, to, to show it and also is a part of the world, then help them and they want to work with them. That for me is the most exciting at the moment. Mario Cuccinella there, speaking to Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans and Steph Chungu, with help from Lily Austin. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.